0: So let's, uh, so that was a very uh, illuminating and uh, very fascinating discussion on uh, China. So to close out this uh, cycle uh, of discussion on civilization and civilizational continuity, um, I think we ought to, you know, kind of uh, speak a little bit more, speak a little bit about Russia and their unique Mm -hmm. position in the order, the world order uh while today their position in the world order uh, especially to millennials who people who uh, whose uh, whose memories do not include whose living memories do not include the memory of the cold war uh, cold war or the berlin wall uh mm-hmm. today russia may seem like a relatively diminished power especially in the size of their economy or the diminishing population and so on. And seen more as uh, mm-hmm. a resource provider and a provider of uh, you know, for, uh, uh, mm. sophisticated uh, military hardware and uh, mm. sophisticated uh, software engineers. Mm-hmm. But over the, especially in the last uh, 400 or so years, Russia has probably played a very important role in world mm. history. Uh, and uh, given its unique position of being off the west and yet not off the west uh, right. in some sense so right. as they say you know the old uh, saying is scratch a russian and find a tatar and <laughs> uh, and uh, so that is their uh, sense and they seem to keep balancing between this european uh sensitivity sensibility and the asiatic sensibility of the steppe so where do you see them and where do you see their position vis-a-vis the mainstream anglo-saxon and western catholic civilization
1: okay so if uh, if you would permit me i would take a longer arc that is going back to the genesis of the russians and then come to our age Uh, should we do it that way, or do you want to do it some other way?
0: No, I would. I would uh, definitely, you know, uh, appreciate your perspective <clears throat> from a longer time frame kind of thing. So definitely, okay. please do go ahead.
1: So the first thing we should know from the ancient time is that the Russians are, in a sense, related to us. So uh, of the Indo-European groups, we have the Indo-Iranians, and the next closest sister group to us are the Balts and the Slavs. So the Balts include the Lithuanians, whom we discussed previously. And one of the Slavic groups are the Russians. Now, that ancient Slavic past, of that we have little to nothing, unfortunately. It would have been a great thing if something, even a little bit, had survived. I think it would have illuminated our own prehistory to a great degree. Now, there is something called the Book of Velas, which they claim is like a Russian Veda from the past. But uh, for most part, people believe it to be a fake, which has been uh, made in the last century or the century before that, inspired by the Hindu Veda. So the Book of Veles, we cannot place any trust in that. And so we have practically nothing of Russian prehistory Uh, apart from the genetic evidence which tells us that as a sister group of the Balts, they are in turn a sister group to us and the Iranians. And they sort of remained close to the old homeland of the Indo-Europeans and didn't move too much. And their organization, ironically, was due to impulses from the West. So if we look at the Indo-European branching, it's now fairly clear that Balto Slavic plus Indo Iranian is a one higher order grouping. But there were many branches outside of this grouping which moved, most of whom moved to the west, one of whom are the Germanic people. And the Germanic people who reached the extreme north of Europe, Scandinavia, uh, at some point they had an efflorescence, which we can very loosely term the Viking efflorescence. So uh, these Vikings uh, mark a a phase of exploration through maritime as well as riverine modes and uh, land armies too, uh, which spread across a wide swath of the Western world. And one such Viking uh, leader family or royal family, to use use it in a very colloquial sense, a prince, a Viking lord, Helgi. He seems to have organized uh, the first Kaganate of the Rus. Now, they are actually termed the Kaganate of the Rus, Rus, uh, even in an early letter of the Jewish Kaganate. So the the one uh, proselytizing success which the Jews had was of the Khazar Kaganate. So the Khazars were a class of Turks uh, who emerged as an offshoot, a branch of the Blue Turks, whom we uh, briefly alluded to in our discussion on China, uh, who were uh, a major power on the steppes after the collapse of the Hun uh, Kaganate. So uh, a branch of them were the Khazars, who converted to uh, Judaism due to the proselytizing activities of some rabbis. And uh, this Jewish Kaganate of the Turks uh, one of their uh, uh, one of the authors within them refers to this uh, kaganate of the Rus under the Hel under Helgi, and in its uh, Slavic form, he's known as Oleg. So Oleg was the first one of Germanic ancestry who uh, organized uh, the Rus kingdom or the kaganate of the Rus, and he. Launched some far ranging invasions. At one point, he went as far as to attack Constantinople itself, uh, which was under the Christian Byzantines at that time. And uh, uh, subsequently, he waged uh, wars against, uh, he and his clan waged wars against the Khazar Jewish Turks and uh, the Arabs and met with considerable success, expanding their uh, Kaganate. So in its very conception as a Kaganate, uh, it had a certain eastern feel to it, even though the founders of it ironically came from the Germanic West. So right in the foundation of this Rus Kaganate, you see the admixture of the East, West, and the Indo-European center. So in terms of the populace itself, the majority were the Slavic Speaking Russians, ancestors of the Russians. They were Slavs. The leadership came from the Germanic tribes of Scandinavia, Vikings like Helgi or Oleg. And uh, in terms of the title and the general state organization, they were influenced by the Jewish Turks uh, of the Khazar Khaganate and other heathen Turks um, further south, east, uh, so on. So, uh, you see this amalgamation. And uh, there are some findings uh, in those northern realms of Iranic uh, remnants or archaeological signs of Iranic religion of uh, the steppe Iranians, which is a non-Zoroastrian uh, strain of the Iranic religion closer to our own religion, which remained behind on the steppes, uh, like the finds of two uh, Interesting bowls with images of uh, the transfunctional goddess whom we identify as Durga and uh, the Iranics uh, would have identified as the equivalent of Durga as uh, Nana whom they would have seen as the equivalent of the uh, as the wife of uh, their cognate of rudra um, that is uh, effectively Vayu so the findings of these uh, Iranic elements, the Khazar-Turkish interactions suggest that the early Viking dom- Viking ruled state of the Rus was already a multi-ethnic state, uh, where you find contacts from both east and the west, and long-range trade contracts, uh, contacts which were bringing in material from as far as India. There was a Russian archaeologist called Kozolov, I think was his name, who claimed that he even found an image of Vishnu uh, somewhere in this Ru's domain. But my own examination of the purported idol, and I'm not even sure if that icon uh, was the actual one which the archaeologists found, it's not Vishnu, but likely the same uh, goddess, the cognate of Durga. But anyhow, it points to these contacts uh, with the, as far as the Indic world, definitely with the Eastern Iranian world on one side, uh, the Jewish Kaghanate on the other, the Arabs uh, with whom they were in conflict, uh, and the Germanic world of um, uh, the Vikings. So, right at its origin, you see uh, that the Rus' kingdom was a multi ethnic one with. Uh, Contacts around the map. Subsequently, uh, they underwent a conversion in large part uh, due to the conversion of one of the queens. Uh, And this conversion was not per se to the Western strains of Christianity, but it was to the Byzantine strain, the same Byzantine force which Oleg had defeated. And the Byzantines had tried hard to fight him, even they tried to poison but they failed in all those attempts, but their eventual success ironically came through this uh, mechanism of uh, conversion of the rules. So the Rus now uh, post-conversion, and it looks as though the conversion was uh, relatively superficial to begin with, and it uh, mainly uh, involved this Viking elite converted to this, uh, the Church of Byzantium, which was the Eastern Orthodox Church. And uh, that was uh, in itself uh, an important event. So uh, you see them set apart from the Western Church, Catholicism and uh, its adherents, even amidst the Slavs who were more to the Western domain got converted to Catholicism. Like, say, the primary divide between Poland and Russia, even today, is between Catholicism and the Eastern Church of Orthodox uh, Christianity, which came from the Byzantine uh, rulers. Uh, So this conversion was definitely a very ugly affair, as all Christian conversions uh, necessarily are. Uh, It involved the demolition of the temple of Perkunyas or uh, Perun, who is the cognate of Parjanya, uh, the Indra-class deity. So there was a very dramatic image of his, which was housed at a temple uh, in the capital of the Rus. And uh, there is an account account of the conversion where that image was demolished and thrown uh, into a river. So uh, Christianity came with its usual uh, evils even to Russia, but over time it seeped into the population, and uh, that there was one key event uh, which the Christian, the conversion to Christianity, uh, marked. It brought in the sentiment of the holy war, and one such holy war is recorded in one of the earliest records of Ru- of the Russian language, which is Igor's uh, Lay, or a a very interesting poem written in the old Russian language of one of the successors of Oleg, Igor, his holy war against the Kipchak Turks. So we see these guys waging their own Eastern Orthodox variant of the Crusades against the heathen Turks. So these were not the same as the Khazar or the Jewish Turks. Um, These were still the heathen Turks, and uh, the Russians launched uh, some crusades into their uh, into their territory, you know, the holy war. But uh, despite that, there was a certain uh, balance of power between the Kipchak kaganates of uh, kaganate of these Turks and the Rus kaganate, and they had marriage relationships. So there again, you see a certain uh, anchor to the east in the to the Turkic east in the form of uh, the marriage between these kaganates. And, uh, over time, this, uh, the Rus Kaganate, it broke up into smaller, uh, princedoms, a period of disunity, but they all, uh, sort of had an alliance with each other. Uh, you see, uh, uh different power centers, like in Kiev, uh, which was one major power center of these Rus, uh, of the Rus princes. Now, the, they appear next in, uh, or the next, the, an important event in their history was the catastrophic encounter with the Mongols. So, Chinggis Khan, who was uh, chasing uh, Jalal al-Din uh, of the Kawarism uh, Sultanate. So, the Kawarizm Sultanate, uh, its original ruler, Muhammad, had been defeated and he died. And his son Jalal al-Din was uh, continuing the jihad and Chinggis Khan chased him. And in course of that chase, uh, he sent two of his greatest generals, uh, Subedai Bhagatur and, uh, J. Noyan on a reconnaissance uh, expedition. So smashing their way through the Islamic uh, army, they moved further west. And moving across, uh, moving on either side of the Caspian, they eventually reached uh, the Rus and launched a devastating attack on the Rus' princes. Uh, The Rus, it was at the height of winter, and the Rus' uh, horsemen, they had their horses with iron shoes. And the Mongol horses did not have iron shoes, so they were able to easily cross the frozen river. Whereas the Rus horses, with their iron shoes, they broke the ice on the river, and uh, they started freezing to death in the cold water as the Mongols were shooting at them from either bank. And uh, the the end was a disastrous defeat, and four of those Russian uh, princes were captured, and they were. Uh, smothered to death under a large wooden plank on top of which the Mongol leaders had a victory feast. So, uh, that was the uh, humiliation which the... the Humiliation and the kind of
0: wanton cruelty is like unimaginable.
1: uh, Well, uh, that's how we would see it today, but the Mongol thinking was that they being royalty, that not a drop of their blood should be shed, so they should be killed. In such a way that their blood doesn't <laughs> come out of their body <laughs> so they decided that the best way is to smother them under this plank where <laughs> they had their feast so uh, the mongol so, uh, yeah i
0: will just interject here
1: to hmm. show
0: our viewers the scale hmm. of what was achieved in this uh, the great raid in a six-year period you can see how they cut across the entire swath and uh, you know they hit the gates of vienna and then wrecked uh, you know they uh, in hungary and across eastern europe and the slavic lands they seem to have left a massive trail of violence and uh you know uh invasion and uh, slaughter and so on in just these uh four years so, so this these, was just to give uh, our uh, viewers a sense of the scale of what happened
1: so i should make one little correction this was the subsequent campaign and okay. that's khan's son ogodai okay but during Chingiz's reign itself uh, jebe and subedai they launched their attack on the ruse. and
0: those, let me try uh, to find uh and Subedai's. Ca-
1: yeah uh, you may find even a picture by a russian artist of those four princes Misty Slav and others being uh, smothered to death under this plank. Uh, right. So if if you want to show the viewers feel <laughs> free. to <laughs> no, I I probably won't. I, I'm want not to show such gruesome, uh, I, I, gruesome. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not suggesting that you do it. But such <laughs> uh, I know I have seen such a painting by a Russian uh, okay, artist.
0: fairly uh, gruesome. Yeah, this is yeah. This is probably what you mean. Let me share my screen. Uh, is this the one you mean? The uh, Volga Bulgars and then the the hit across.
1: Uh, yes, yes. So this is the yeah. The twelve eighteen, twelve eleven. All those are during the reign of Chinggis Khan. And twelve twenty three. Yeah. So all that is the is the first wave. Yeah. So, so, that's, so, uh, that's probably famous mo- movement across the Caps uh, or along the Caspian and the hit on the Rus. You can see Kiev right there in the corner. So, that's the J.B. Subedai uh, campaign. Uh, yeah. So, uh, anyhow, uh, so after this humiliating defeat and the subsequent Mongol invasions, like the earlier map which you showed, so there were the in Ogodai's reign. There were uh, further invasions launched. The grandson of Chinggis Khan, Batu, uh, along with Subedai, launched a second attack, which penetrated even deeper into Slavic lands and the Hungarian lands. And uh, there is a certain uh, custom amidst the Poles where they blow a a tune on the horn only halfway, because the guy who was warning the city by blowing his horn A mongol arrow cut him down when he was half halfway through the tune which he was blowing on his horn so to this day they uh, uh, remember that event by just blowing the horn halfway through the tune as uh, it happened to that uh, guy who was killed and it was in that campaign they probably used the first event of aerial bombardment in history where they had guys tied to giant kites, and uh, they flew the kites up. And then they those guys tied to the kites threw down uh, bombs from the air. So this uh, was an early occasion of aerial bombardment. So anyhow, uh, all that history's consequence was the conquest of the Rus, who came under what was called the Tatar yoke. Now, the Tatars are not the Mongols. Uh, They were a tribe in Mongolia who were actually inimical to Chinggis Khan's clan. So they killed Chinggis Khan's father when uh, he was taking Chinggis out to find his wife. Uh, And subsequently, when the Khan uh, came to power, one of the tribes which he wiped out was that of the Tatars. But the Russians, for some reason, kept using the name of these enemies Tatars, and there may be a reason for that because in the earlier campaign of Chinggis Khan's father, uh, Yesuge, he, he heard of his son being eldest son being born when he captured or killed a Tatar chief called Temujin. So it was a tough fight, evidently. So he named his own son as Temujin, and that's how. That was the original name of the Khan. Chinggis Khan is just a title. Uh, but uh, this Mongol yoke, as the Russians call it, and uh, it had a two-four. It had a threefold effect, one could say. One, it was a matter of humiliation, but it also created a nationalist sentiment because when you are under foreign rule, you tend to have a certain resentment, and uh, the Mongol rule was. Uh, certainly not taken by the Russians uh, as uh, uh, something which they like too much, or at least that's the modern interpretation. Uh, 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 There's there probably some element of truth to that. Uh, but uh, when you have this resentment, you have a unification. So the Russian Kaganate, which was now subsumed under the Mongol Kaganate, uh, the, a certain unity of Russian ethnicity uh, started coming about. The second uh, factor was that under the Mongol rule, they acquired many features of Mongol warfare. And uh, this was actually a positive, I would say. Uh, so they became more uh, in tune with the developments in steppe warfare and uh, the Mongol style uh, of fighting. The third and and th- that was to be of great importance, as we'll see, downstream. And uh, the third factor was the administration. So definitely certain administrative uh, reforms with Chinggis Khan, and importantly, Saad Nogode, uh, who ascended the throne as Dalai in Khan, uh, instituted. The Rus passively imbibed some of those. Uh, Taxation systems, uh, revenue systems, uh, like uh, the Mongol system of uh, taking a certain, uh, where the government will take some money from you, but it'll invest, it'll invest it in various ventures, and uh, whatever it profits out of that, it'll be put back into public works. So uh, there were there were some administrative devices which the Rus uh, acquired from the Mongols. Now, the, the Mongol Empire, as it weakened, uh, and Islamized in the West, it had a, uh, a, a contrast again came about. The Mongol rulers, uh, the, the heathen Mongols, like the Khan, the great Khan and Ogode and the like, they were, uh, secular in the Indian sense. But, uh, after Islamization, there was obviously a clash between the Orthodox, uh, Rus. Orthodox Christian Rus and uh, the Islamic Mongols, and the final uh, great clash uh, where the Mongols held the upper hand was during Khan Tokhtamesh of uh, the Western Khaganate, the the guys who descended from Chinggis Khan's eldest son Jochi, uh, those the, those those. Uh, Mongols Khan Toktamesh, uh, during his Western campaign, which struck both Lithuania and Russia, uh, his attack on the Russians, he penetrated as far as Moscow and burned down Moscow to the ground. So that was a, hu- a further humiliation uh, at the hands of the Mongols. And it was at that point that a certain Ru- Russian national consciousness started rising to overthrow the um, the Mongol raid or the Mongol uh, rule. And if this was achieved over a long period where the tables were turned. But the first major event was the defeat of Khan Mamey of the same horde by Dmitry uh, Donsky, or Dmitry of the Dawn. And this Russian Khan, or uh, Russian Tsar, Uh, if we were to call them now by the Byzantine title of the Caesar. Uh, He uh, had learned the tactics of the steppe warfare and he turned the tables, he used the same trick very resolutely against Khan Mamey and defeated him comprehensively, re-establishing the Russian power and overthrowing uh, the Mongol yoke.
0: And uh, in the... Just a question here, by this time, mm-hmm. was the shift from the western uh, Slavic region of Kiev, Kivan Rus, uh, mm-hmm. to the core Slavic region of Muscovy, had that shift, power shift already happened or uh, was it still yet uh, in, in its it, infancy?
1: It had happened. It had okay. happened. So, uh, one point to note is that the burning down of Moscow, it uh, sort of uh, temporarily set that back. Because Moscow was completely destroyed, but still Moscow was uh, remembered as being the uh, center that they came back to it. And they were able to, uh, they reestablished it after the um, destruction of Moscow. So and, course, uh,
0: during this mm. period of the Mongol, between the establishment of the Khaganate, uh, the Rus Khaganate of Rus, and the mm. Mongol invasions, there's roughly around 400, mm. 450 years. Uh, how mm-hmm. did the ruling class change? Did the ruling class continue to be Germanic, Teutonic, or slash Viking in nature, or had it nativized and become uh, the ruling class had become, you know, mostly? Uh, uh slavic with some co-opted russian characteristics
1: i mean so definitely the slavis the slavicization uh was continually increasing so uh over that period it became increasingly slavic if uh, if that makes sense
0: yes so as you see the eastward movement plus so yeah. the by the time the uh, the jingis uh, khan time of jingis khan and the mongol the mongol tatar yoke before the tatar yoke started the yeah. the genesis of the modern russian identity and the state the russian uh, if i may call it the rashtra the Rus rashtra had already been completed in terms of its core uh, holy uh, holy geography centered around the moscow saint petersburg region and the ruling class which was a, a slavic orthodox christian ruling class
1: so as i said there was a fragmentation so the orthodoxy came in the lay in the later part of the viking leadership uh after that in the period of fragmentary there were the dukes each of the rulers of the centers were termed uh Dukes. So there was the Duky of Mos- Moscovy. So that was one center. Now there was similarly one at Ryazan. There was one in uh, Kiev. But once the Kiev, uh, the Kievan uh, Rus, disintegrated under the Mongol assault, and the Principality of Moscow, the the power started cent- centering in it. Hmm. Uh, the shift started occurring in that direction. Now, it was not that uh, during this the period of when the Golden Horde, as the Jochit Kaganate was termed, was uh, in power, the rules were totally out of control. There were periods where some of these dukes acquired their own uh, in their own. They acquired a degree of independence, you could say. Or they were feudatories with a degree of independence. But uh, the the pivotal event was this uh, battle under the leadership of uh, Dmitry of Moscow. Importantly, he was the Prince of Moscow. And uh, he smashed the Mongol army in uh, 1380 in, uh, in the battlefield of Kulikovo. So for the Russians, it is like a Mahabharata-like event uh, for the founding of their nation. And uh, even in the Soviet period, you can see that they made uh, paintings of that pivotal event, uh, which are very anachronistic, of course, some of them which I have seen. Uh, but uh, they present like a, a heroic battle between Khan Mamey and uh, Dmitry. Fighting like two heroes, like say a Mahabharata uh, uh, battle between two uh, yodhas. So uh, it was uh, a very important event in the Russian consciousness of the overthrow of Mongol power and uh, the return of uh, of the Russian uh, uh, power. Now the uh, the chronicle, which describes it, says that uh, Dmitry had fielded a very large army, but even modern historians feel that that might be an exaggeration. Like, I think if I I may not be remembering the number precisely, but the Russians claim that they fielded an army of over hundred thousand. Uh, but uh, even if it were not if it was not that much, uh, it might have been. Lesser than that, but perhaps something in that range, closer to that, rather than much lesser. Uh, It gave the first hint of a Russian force which could amass a large amount of manpower, which was uh, quite unprecedented on their part uh, before that. And it was to foreshadow many events down to uh, times closer to our own, like World War II, uh, where this Kind of consciousness was raised of the defense of Mother Russia as uh, they presented. So there's a lot of patina which has quoted the original events of the Battle of Kulikogo, but uh, despite that, we may say that it was a very pivotal event in their uh, their consciousness. Now, uh,
0: I just want to interject here with a question. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Okay, okay.
0: uh, Now we are. now that you describe the battle of Kulikovo and the struggle mm-hmm. between the Tatar or the uh, Turkic elements, the steppe Turkic elements, the Mongols the Mo- and the yeah. and the mm-hmm. uh, Slavic Russians, see much is made mm-hmm. of a certain earlier event that happened, uh, especially mm-hmm. in the 20th century. Much was made of the uh, earlier event that happened, which was the invasion of the Teutonic Knights. And the defense of uh, novgorod by prince alexander nevsky and mm-hmm. <clears throat> even today the mamaev kurgan is such a is supposed to be some kind of uh you know place of pilgrimage for russians was it entirely yeah. myth-making or was it as pivotal and important a battle as is uh spoken of uh which one the uh alexander, alexander nevsky the battle of novgorod the Battle on the ice, uh, which was very dramatically presented uh, in cinema. Uh,
1: I have not. I don't watch movies, so I have not <laughs> seen that movie. But uh, yeah, perhaps, perhaps we we'll, we could uh, may, maybe we'll come to that in, in a certain context okay. as we come closer to our times. That is the con. Okay. When you place it uh, in the context of World War Two, suddenly that. Uh, that seems like a pivotal event because right. it marks this clash between the Germanic West and the Slavic uh, Russian core. So Hitler saw himself as uh, the Teutonic knights conquering Russia in a sense. And uh, for the, despite them being the Soviet communists, to rouse the average Russian, uh, this event may have played a major uh, mental. Uh, Role it would have played well into that mental imagery of the defense of the of Mother Russia against the Germans. Uh, So so when we
0: when we come to that uh, that part, uh, you know, where the mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. of the clash between the Catholic West and uh, Russia, when we come to that part, I'd probably do a small uh, divergence Mm -hmm. to tell our uh, Mm -hmm. viewers about Mm -hmm. the significance of Alexander Nevsky to Second World War and uh, also the significance of that movie in movie history. It's a very, a very critical mm-hmm. movie in movie history. So I'll probably oh, do a I'm, small
1: detail. I'm totally un- un- unaware of that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, I guess that's something where I, I'll just listen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, since... Uh, i I'm Sorry, not, sorry about uh, the I'm not. No, no, no problem at all. That is, I am. Yeah. I was not even aware, aware that such a movie was made of this thing. Uh, right. Uh, thing. So uh, there are some very uh, deep blind spots uh, in my uh, uh, in in my thinking. But uh, I think, uh, in if we were to look at history per se. Uh, I would not place uh, this event as being as important as the overthrow of uh, the uh, the Mongol regime or the the Tatar yoke, as the Russians uh, like to call it. Right, right. Uh, uh, because this was uh, Novo, Novogorod, Novgorod, and uh, the period after that. The Russian power was still pretty weak, and uh, it may have sort of assuaged, uh, the way I look at it is, it may have assuaged the Russian pride because this event happened a little after the defeat of the other princes uh, by uh, the Mongols, the complete smashing by the Mongols. So after that, uh, when you gain a certain victory, uh, it can it can feel good and that's my interpretation of it but it did not mean that the rash okay they had defeated uh, the the crusading uh, knights of germany after all it was presented as a crusade it was a continuation of the crusade against the pagan uh, balts these Teutonic knights were conducting a, uh, the livonian crusade if i remember right and it was an extension of the Livonian Crusade to yes. attack the Rus. Yes. Uh, yes. So, uh, in that sense, uh, staving that off assuage Russian pride. However, uh, it did not mean that the Russian uh, the state was by any means an eschewed uh, phenomenon, or its even its survival was in question because, like Khan Tokhtamysh's attack and burning down of Moscow meant that they could come under a a Tatar yoke uh, again. So uh, in uh, whatever the case, uh, the Battle of Kulikovo, in my opinion, uh, was uh, important. It did not mean the end of the Mongol reign. It simply meant that the Russians had defeated the Mongols in a comprehensive way and while the Kagan, the Mongol kaganate, continued to fight and gain victories even after that, uh, it was like a turning point. It's just like, to use an analogy in cricket, the first time India ever beat uh, England, I think, it gave them the confidence that they could at least win a test match. So it was that kind of an event with respect to the Mongols. Um, and I don't know if you watch cricket, i'm just uh, generalizing here since uh, uh, that's something which indians tend to uh, that's an analogy which indians yeah. tend to use yeah yeah. the
0: <laughs> uh, yeah you know the 1983 uh win which was supposed to be or the, the 1983
1: world cup which was uh, yeah. perhaps the first cricket which i watched uh, i think we had just got the tv in our house then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, it, it was a huge event, it it yeah. showed that we could even beat the West Indies, which at that time was, was all powerful. Uh, right. So uh, it didn't mean that the Mongol uh, power ended at Kulikovo, or that the Mongol victories over Russia stopped after Kulikovo. But it showed that the Russians could beat the Mongols comprehensively. And it gave them uh, a new life or a new confidence. But uh, let's not linger about all the events. Uh, Even I would have to uh, actually look up some details of all the many battles which took place following Kulikovo, since it was not a straight path that the Mongols vanished after Kulikovo. There was a back and forth. It was a seesaw battle. In a sense, it was like Vijayanagara and the Islamic frontier. In South India, where uh, there was a seesaw movement going on for a while uh, between the two sides. So, uh, but coming, we'll skip some of those events, but at some point, the Rus started turning the table on the Kaganids, and they started pursuing the conquests into the Mongol lands and uh, with peter uh, the czar the peter you saw the first great modernization of the russian uh, army and uh, this uh, until that point you could see them as being more or less a step power they had adopted many of the mongolian tactics and uh, kipchak Kaganate with whom they had interactions earlier, the Turkic Kaganet. So the turco mongol system still dominated uh, the Russian uh, mind, so to say, or the military uh, tactics. But it was with the Tsar Peter that you saw a shift uh, towards more Western tactics, modernization of the artillery, and Western European norms or Western U- U- European ideas of uh, military conquest they entered the russian mind and over a protracted period systematically they destroyed the mongol khaganates uh, all the way to Crimea in the southwestern side and on the eastern side their expansion into into siberia which was which is known after khan shibir uh, another mongol uh, ruler uh, is, in a way, equivalent to the Western Europeans' expansion into the Americas. So this fact is often underplayed. It's seen as though the Russians never explored any territory, never went into lands far outside their own. But the expansion into Siberia, while it was entirely a land expansion, and like the the maritime expansions of the Western European powers, they were, uh, they were definitely parallel. And um, the Russians did accumulate a body of knowledge similar to the Western Europeans in their colonial ventures uh, as they moved into Siberia. And this uh, the conquest of Siberia was a very critical uh, event for them because uh, it uh, gave them a certain strategic depth which was going to be very important for them uh, in World War II, for example. Uh, it uh, Some role of that was seen even earlier when the Napoleonic Wars uh, took place and Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Uh, there were remarkable parallels to the German invasion during the Nazi uh, campaign against the Rus, uh, in that the Rus were retreating so in a sense they used the old tactic of the step of the feigned retreat uh, until they got their enemy in a compromised position and ironically the mamayev kurgan where the stand against the germans took place is named after that same khan mamay who was defeated by uh, uh, Dimitri on the dawn of the battle of kulikovo so uh, uh, this uh, conquest of the East it gave them the strategic depth. It also brought them in contact with the Qing China, and uh, the beginning of the Sino-Russian conflict was uh, was already seen as part of that. Uh, and you. You know, in a more uh, academic sense, the Russian interest in East, in the East, similar to the West, the Western Europeans, uh, developing an interest in India and the emergence of white Indology. Uh, similarly, the Russians developed their own sinology and uh, Japanology, which, uh, to which they made some useful contributions. Uh, anyhow i am being a bit anachronistic but uh, it, all this is a, a, a bloviation primarily on your first question of the of russia being at this at the crossroads so to say between the east and the west Yeah, and the, the conquest of from Siberia, the center
0: somewhat at the center of eurasia they at one point in time you know maybe during the peak of the soviet union or even during the times of the Romanov czars—they fairly dominated Eurasia
1: as a power. Correct. So that uh, the reason I went into this was to say that the Siberian conquest, in a sense, only reaffirmed that eastern connection, which became very important to them when uh, they were uh, facing the crisis of the Nazi invasion. Uh, so, uh, in any case. Uh, The dominance of Eurasia meant that they were going to come into clash with other powers. For example, uh, after the collapse of the Marathas in India, we have now fast-forwarded way from Peter, we have come to the 1800s, but I think that's an important uh, period where a number of events of note happened. Again, I'm being a bit anachronistic, but uh, I think it's the themes more than the historical timeline which any person can just look up a book of history or do a search online. So uh, I'm uh, I'm not going to be uh, doing that job. It's this is just to sort of uh, try to distil some insights, if you may call them the insights at all. But uh, So uh, after the collapse of the Maratha power in the Anglo-Maratha wars, uh, starting uh, the downward slide of the Marathas starting from 1803, uh, by 1820 the conquest of India uh, from the Marathas and other powers more or less, and then the collapse of the Sikh empire uh, meant that the English were the dominant force in India the western europeans also had designs on china which we saw with the opium wars so it meant that as a dominant land power straddling west and east russia was going to very naturally come into conflict with uh, the western european powers which had their eyes on asia too so india was seen as a very obvious uh, source for enriching themselves by the Western Europeans, and as they were uh, involved in the plunder of India, the Rus were watching barely because uh, they ha- they also had an eye on it. And while it never amounted to anything, there were attempts to, by the Rus to somehow connect up with uh, the, Hindu, uh, or the Hindu, I would call them Hindu, but the somewhat secular-minded Hindu fight back in 1857. It would have been a very interesting thing if uh, we did connect with the Rus in that period. But uh, nothing came up to that, even though the Rus sent some exploratory emissaries. And then there was the so-called Great Game, where uh, the English sent explorers, including a Kashmirian Brahmana um, with young husband, into Central Asia. And this was directly uh, infringing on the Russian domain. So the great game was a clash between the uh, English who had occupied India and the Rus who were expanding uh, southwards, um, conquering the former uh, Turk and Mongolic uh, lands. Now a very important event at this point, uh, and this is how I interpret history, that was the clash within Christianity. So. I see that the Russians saw themselves uh, as they were conquering these territories, as the force within Christianity. They saw themselves as the leaders of the Christian world, and this was in a direct clash with uh, the two centers of the West: Catholicism and the the rebellion, the counter religion against Catholicism, that is Protestantism. Uh, and one of the uh, foci for both these powers was none other than Jerusalem, the root of all Abrahamisms, so of all three Abrahamisms. So both uh, Rus and the West tried to gain a certain control of of Jerusalem. And the Russians did come very close, if I remember right, to uh, taking Jerusalem or uh, taking Constantinople, which was their uh, the foundation of their own orthodox church. Uh, and in this process of presenting themselves as the leader of the Christian world, uh, what they did was to break up the Osman empire of the Turks. So during the great jihad of um, Suleiman, the lawgiver, as he's called, the Osman empire, uh, emperor, who took uh, the Osmans to their zenith. Uh, so he came very close to Vienna and he's in his jihad on the west. He totally destroyed the Hungarians and smashed the uh, knights of Malta. And it was uh, an all round victory for Islam. At that point in the east, there was the tyrant Akbar who was uh, destroying the Hindus in India. And uh, he was still in his jihadi days. And in the West, Sulaiman was uh, trampling over the Christians. So if at that point in history, everyone would have thought that it was going to be an Islamic uh, century. Uh, but uh, things turned, and the focus shifted to Christianity. But what is commonly ignored is that there were two centers of Christianity, at least two centers, the Rus, Orthodox, Eastern Church, and the Western uh, Protestant and Catholic uh, churches. So, so, at
0: this point, I'd like to, you know, uh, probably uh, interject to mm-hmm. point out some kind of self-image that the Rus have of themselves. You know, there is mm-hmm. one uh, part where Ivan the Terrible, the first Tsar, mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. who actually called himself a Tsar, Ivan the yeah. Terrible, is supposed to have said that two Romes fell. Mm-hmm. We are the third yeah. Rome and we shall not fall and this Very again parallels point. yeah this again parallels yeah. all the uh, you know any tyrant or any great conqueror uh, in the western europe usually thinks of themselves as the inheritor of rome whether it is charlemagne or napoleon or even later hitler you know who thought of himself as the inheritor of the germanic holy roman empire and they they all
1: lay claims to being the true successor to rome in a sense uh, and in this regard, I should point out that even Suleiman saw himself as Caesar. Right. So it extended even to the Islamic world. So he, he, in his, in the long inscription in his famous masjid in Istanbul, uh, he uses many phrases. And I don't recall all the phrases, but one of the phrases is he's caliph of the Mohammedans, which of course he was. And he's Caesar. He's also Caesar at the same time. So he remembers the fact that he's ruling what was once Constantinople, the seat of the Caesar, and uh, Caesar used in the general term, in a general sense. Uh, so that did have a very pervasive influence even on the Turkic uh, Kaganate of the Osmans. And he calls himself other things, like he says he's like the shadow of Allah on the earth. He's like, uh, Jesus in his piety or something like that. So he appropriates both the Christian and the Islamic, uh, side and also the old Turkic. He calls himself the great Kaghan in a Turkic, uh, Turkic or Mongolic uh, fashion. So anyhow, but, uh, the, the contest within Christianity meant that the Russians played a major role in the liberation of those uh, uh, places in Eastern Europe, which had been conquered during the jihads of Salim and Suleiman, and uh, before that Mehmet, who conquered Constantinople. So the liberation of Romania and uh, uh, Eastern European states, which are under Islamic uh, rule. The Rus played a very important uh, role in that. And this is commonly ignored uh, in Western tellings of history, that how much of the liberation of uh, Eastern Europe from Islam uh, was due to the Russian support. And in this period, there was something uh, which happened, which, in a sense, extended an old trope. Uh, Suleiman himself had sent. at the height of his power, emissaries to France and Britain. And they had, on paper, become his allies. So Western Europe, the two Western European powers, France and England, uh, were now allied with Suleiman, a Turkic power. And he was in war with the Rus' to a degree. But at that point, the Rus' were not his primary focus, by any means but Eastern Europeans, like Hungarians, and uh, even the Germans, like uh, the the Germanic people in in Vienna, uh, uh, the Poles. So all these were uh, enemies of the Turks, the Osman Turks. So this interesting alliance, which you see starting right at that period, uh, meant that there was an Islamo-Christian alliance of the extreme Western Christian side and the Islamic caliphate uh, in the center. And that was pitted against Eastern Europeans, and it extended to the Russians uh, over time. And the crystallization of this uh, schism in the Christian world was seen in the famous uh, war which was fought between uh, the Crimean war between the French and the British on one side and the Russians on the other. So uh, the Russians put up a very resolute defence uh, of their cities, for example, Sevastopol, which was completely destroyed by the uh, British-French alliance. But who? what was the cause of this war? The cause of this war was the Russian conflict with the Turks. So the Turkish uh, Navy uh, fell into the hands. They were all moored in one place, and the Russians saw an opportunity to take hold, smash the Osman Navy. And they launched a surprised attack on it and sunk all their ships. And this alarmed the English and the French, seeing that the Russians were gaining uh, a naval foothold in the Black Sea. So uh, that was something which uh, they could not tolerate, since they prided themselves as the true naval powers amidst other things, and also as the true powers, probably as the true arbitrators of the Christian world. So they allied with an Islamic power, the dying Turkish uh, sultanate of the Osman's, against the Rus to fight the Crimean war, where despite the resolute effort of the Russian generals Uh, It ended in what one could only term a defeat of the Russians. So this was that other point of reckoning, that inflection point. They had fought off Napoleon, uh, even though it was at a huge human cost and he advanced considerably to the east. uh, But uh, the feigned retreat tactic had worked and Tsar Alexander eventually uh, uh, won the. Won the conflict and Napoleon retreated in a disastrous uh, defeat, losing most of his army. But now the English French alliance had launched an attack right into the heart of the Russian zone of influence and had uh, inflicted a defeat on the Russian forces in the Crimean War. So, this uh, second point of reckoning, maybe there were others along the line, but I I place the Mongol defeat as one, and the re- recovery from that, starting with uh, Dmitry Donskoy's victory at uh, Kulikovo. And then this point where they realized that they were not really up to mark. And then the third point of reckoning came even closer to our times, when in the East, there was a new power uh, on the rise in the form of Japan. And we can take a brief detour here uh, to talk a bit about Jap very little about japan. very uh...
0: yeah but uh to before you be take the detour into japan there are a yeah. couple of observations that came out that i'd like to make mm. in your telling mm. of this history there are two themes mm. that uh there are some themes actually that uh, really mm. stand out one mm. of mm. that is that how the western catholic west how russia has always had uh aspiration to mm have an warm water entry through the black sea into the mediterranean and how for a very long time western catholic europe has thwarted that ambition by an alliance with the asia minor power which is the turkic uh, uh, the turkey which is the ottoman turkey and this has continued for nearly 300 350 years right from the time of ivan onwards when elizabeth was ruling england and ivan was right right Russia to again the start of the Victorian age, uh, when just before the Victorian age, when again this uh, require re- need was thwarted, and again yes. during the Second World War period, the First World War, and then the Second World War, and even today, when always even there yes. the Russian advance into Crimea and therefore a consolidation and an entry into the Mediterranean is constantly thwarted through a uh, partner and one probably thinks that the the real you know value for turkey the value that turkey holds in the western scheme of things is as this uh, leverage point against russia or this choke point against russia
1: absolutely now uh, one just i'll one point i'll say not to contradict you but i should just stress on it that it's a catholic come protested that right. is these two are in conflict with themselves, but when it comes to Russia, the counter-religion counter of Protestantism and the older Catholic strain, they ally against the Orthodox, who are seen as nearly heathen with respect to uh, their uh, heresy, or, or they are seen as a heresy with respect to their, uh, the Catholic Protestant combined. Now, the Orthodox harbor a similar feeling. It's a mutual Abramistic antagonism between them. Now, one important point to note in this is uh, the modern state of Israel and its uh, predecessors, the Jews, uh, who played an important role in the Osman Empire. So, uh, there were some Jewish uh, advisors to the Osman Sultans, and uh, one of them uh, had uh, lent some money and done some business with uh, the French, and the French did not pay him back for the financial services this Jewish uh, official of the Osmans had offered to the French uh, ruler. And so he was able to uh, call upon the Osman Sultan to punish the French severely and so the osmans attacked the french ships when they came to egypt and confiscated all their goods uh, as a punishment yeah, and probably the jewish um, advisor of the sultan and financial backer of the french he got back his uh his investment through this confiscation uh, so uh, the the presence of a Jewish state or a Jewish uh, power within the Osman domain is not something completely unexpected. It was already in place even in the Osman period. And uh, one could see the modern Israel as some kind of an extension of uh, the role played by the Jewish advisers to some of the sultans uh, of the Osman Empire. Uh, that's just a, a little uh aside in this
0: um yeah so and, we can go uh, back to the main theme that you were exploring which is that of the uh, um uh the uh, japanese encounter in nineteen oh four. yes
1: right so japan is an interesting case uh very, I've, Japan is a topic in itself, but uh, it's not uh, my speciality. And it's sort of peripheral to the history which we are talking about right now, except for this clash with uh, Russia and the events which followed. Uh, so one point to note is that they, early on, acquired this legalistic philosophy from China, and that was a very central event in the foundation of their own consciousness. But one thing of the Japanese people, uh, if the Chinese had a certain genius of uh, the social engineering through carrot and stick, the Japanese had a certain genius of uh, placing a filter. They had a very good filter to what used to come into their country. Uh, So the Chinese did the show susceptibility to the fads but the japanese were much less susceptible to fads because of that filter which they placed. and whatever would come in would have to pass through that filter so it won't come in as is but uh, even the legalism filtered through it did not displace the basic shinto ideals um, which we uh, see in the Original Nihon Kojiki, the oldest Shinto text, which has come down to us, and uh, what it contributed to was, though a certain form of uh, centering on the em- emperor, which allowed the reunification after the after periods of fragmentation. It was that same filter which allowed Japan to uh, proactively acquire what was useful from European tradition. And this included a variety of things, uh, ranging from mathematics and medicine on one side to uh, technology. Uh, The Japanese bauda monks or uh, bauda teachers, acharyas, they were pretty good at manufacturing guns. And uh, we have evidence that even during the reign of the Japanese tyrant uh, Oda, they were making uh, Nobunaga. They were making good guns. So there were several uh, about the clans which specialize about, not clans, but about the vikshus who defended their uh, religious institutions by making these uh, good guns. So they had a certain technological prior, which they could now, an artistic tradition, metal smelting tradition and the like, which they could with uh, Western uh, influences, which they let uh, pass through this filter. Now, uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that they went through a period where the filter completely shut down, and it was the arrival of the Americans, and subsequently Yoshida Shoin's uh, realization of the need to open up the filter a bit to let in what was uh, necessary that allowed uh, the the Meiji reforms and uh, the, the new Japan to arise. So uh, this unique uh, combination of uh, circumstance, just like England has a very unique combination of circumstance, Japan also has its uh, very unique combination of circumstance, allowed it to develop a remarkable uh, military force. It was always a good military power. We had seen how during the Ming period uh, they inflicted a crushing defeat on the Koreans and they even had an audacious plan under Hideyoshi to conquer Beijing itself from the Ming. While they did not achieve that, they were still able to put uh, several hundred thousand men uh, to war and ship them across the Sea of Japan and hit Korea really hard, despite the Ming backing their Korean uh, allies. So they had a, uh, a strong tradition of uh, military expeditionary uh, activity, which now combined with this uh, with the new Japan post the Meiji uh, Reformation, made them an unexpected power. And when uh, they correctly gamed that when the Western Europeans were Uh, subjugating China. Unlike India, which the British conquered, uh, the next target, China, was not conquered by occupation per se, because there was a conflict between all the Western European powers and Russia uh, as to who would take China. So they realized that if the Brits took China just like they took India, they would be, in a sense, uh, the world conquerors, unprecedented world conquerors. So the other Western European powers and Russia and America too now, arranged, that is USA, arranged that uh, no one nature power would dominate China, but it would instead be cut up like a cake Uh, amidst all of them, and they would all have a combined influence on China. Japan correctly saw this as a grave threat uh, on its uh, flank. And it saw that the Qing were declining. They had already been weakened by all these jihads and rebellions, which we discussed earlier. So they uh, attacked the Qing and conquered some territory there. So the Japanese sort of forced themselves on the table with the Western powers, and now the Western powers had to concede a role for Japan in the suppressed or the subjugated China. And having gained a place at the table, Russia uh, became the next target because uh, there were Russian ambitions, uh, which obviously affected uh, the Japanese sphere of influence like that. Uh, of sakhalin yeah
0: their their uh aspirations are they still haven't seemed to have let go of their aspirations which is the kamchatka peninsula the Kuril islands or sakhalin yes
1: uh, especially right and uh, in the past it was a japanese territory which which now has been conquered by the russians after world war ii but the clash was inevitable so the modernized uh, japanese army defeated the russians to uh, enforce or to secure their flank and uh, this was again a moment of reckoning despite the chemical weapons which uh, dmitry mendelief the inventor of the periodic table uh, made for the russians it was a disastrous defeat and uh, the russians were exposed in many ways they uh, this a warm water port, which you mentioned, was one major factor. They sailed all the way around Africa to reach uh, the eastern coast uh, adjacent to Japan, and uh, in that long and slow movement, they lost the strategic initiative and uh, were completely outclassed in the naval conflict with Japan. So this. Uh, I would say this was the third point of reckoning, when the Rus realized that they had to, that is, it was, again, humiliating. In many ways, for them, it seemed like the Mongol defeat. It was a defeat by an Asiatic power, especially given that, at this point, they saw themselves more as a Christian Western power. Uh, But they had been defeated by uh, an Asiatic power who, in their mental projection, was not very different from the Mongols. And importantly, the Japanese were a heathen power. It, so uh, the, so Christianity had also been the Christian uh, leadership of the Christian world had also taken a big beating um, at the hands of Japan. So I think it was uh, these which, in a sense, forged the Russian urge for becoming even Greater in power. That is, they had, there was a certain, uh, inward soul searching, so to say, to try to, uh, acquire a greater power. And eventually, so there was a, in, um, there was a hatred for Japan, which was completely, uh, it went beyond all bounds. They were, wa- they were seeking revenge at all costs. And it was to come in World War Two. Uh, So a combination of these events uh, were to shape Russia, but the dramatic event of the revolution happened uh, shortly after these events. Uh, That is the defeat of uh, Russia by the Japanese. And that completely set them back for uh, at least a couple of decades. And I would very controversially propose that this revolution was itself an act which was uh, engineered and fostered by Western Europe in order to destabilize Russia. And uh, like many such destabilization experiments, it simply went out of hand. And uh, eventually the West saw itself with a new enemy in the form of uh, The Soviet consolidation, but uh, so at this point there is hmm. a
0: something that I would like to point out. You know what you're saying. You're probably quite uh, achieved at this, reached at this kind of conclusion after a lot of thought. But I would like to, you know, just just for contrast, uh, out of Hmm. the raves and rants that uh, Hitler was prone to, you know, Hmm. out of that there were some themes that you can glean. One hmm. of the themes that you could glean uh, was that he claimed that Russia had been always, you know, governed by uh, the master race, the Germanic master race, in the form of the Varangians, hmm. uh, and uh, and later on the Teutonic Knights were a were a force to, uh, which tried to stop the debasement of the master uh, rulers into Slavs, uh, Slav- hmm. subhuman Slavs and further mm-hmm. later uh, he claimed uh, that you know uh, it was the romanovs were actually germanic in extraction and a lot of the jurikids right. earlier jurikids were germanic
1: in extraction Ruh- so Ruh- his are the are the vikings essentially yes. Hel- 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 Helga was uh, was yeah. a viking yeah
0: and he said hmm. that the communist revolution in russia was uh, was uh, was a creation of the jew uh, you know who is always set up against the Germanic master race. The is his of the Jew, and uh, supported by the uh, you know greedy capitalists in America and Britain. The Jew went and corrupted the pristine uh, the pristine state where uh, the Germanic master race was ruling over Russia. So this was a theme hmm. of his, and uh, you, I mean. Of course, there was a lot of raving and ranting around this, but this was a theme of his, hmm. which is quite curious For because there might have been a germ of truth in the fact that there was a Germanic uh, you know, ruling class always in Russia, uh, yeah. for a long time in Russia.
1: Oh, and I should also point out that even after Peter and closer to our times, there were the Russified Germans. Uh, yeah. There are some famous uh, Russian poets, uh, I'm not an expert on Russian literature in the uh, non technical sense. So uh, I'll just state that I, I'm not recalling his name, uh, but uh, one of our friends, one of my friends on Twitter, maybe she doesn't want to be named in any public forum. I'd written a good article on Russian literature and uh, people can look them up uh, mm-hmm. uh, if, you, if they want sure, to. Sure. So one of the, their, uh, um, i can convey that to you after we are done if sure, you want sure, to link. Sure, I, and sure. i could link it once you put, put up this uh, this uh, discussion so there were russian generals uh, who were actually russified germans and these are not rurikids or uh, old germanic uh, settlers in russia these are more who came from germany Russia. others like the great mathematician Leonhard Euler, who is of Germanic ancestry, uh, he was patronized by the Russians in uh, St. Petersburg. And, uh, well no, I think he was in konigsburg i I'm missing. That is, they are the same, but I'm not clear exactly where he lived in Russia. But I believe it was in in Königsberg. Yeah, even
0: during uh, the and, czar uh, times, I believe they used to. Hire all these German, uh, 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 you know, generals uh, to come and teach Russia about Russian armies, about modern, the what was then modern war techniques. Uh, Klausowicz oh, was absolutely. supposed to have been contracted for the Russians at some point in time, even.
1: Absolutely, the and it went the other way too. The unification of Germany under Bismarck and the emergence of the German state was definitely supported by the Russians and uh, this can be seen as a symbiosis because there was a german elite in russia there were ties with the russian royalty Uh, so them paying back uh, by assisting and aiding the uh, unification of germany under bismarck Otto von bismarck uh, was something which should be kept in mind that uh, that, that is, Hitler's characterization of it is an essentialism. That is, it's a one-sided essentialism, where uh, he presents it as uh, the the, the super-Germans and the Untermensch Russians. Uh, but the reality was, yes, there was always a German elite in Russia, or there were, there were periods where a German elite uh, existed in Russia. And uh, there was this uh, crosstalk. In which it was not always uh, confrontational. There was also the assistance. The very rise of the modern German state did receive a certain uh, uh, help from the Russian uh, state. But uh, in terms of uh, this idea of the West uh, subverting and uh, the Rus via the revolutionaries and the uh, like, Trotsky and others if you look at the evidence i think it looks strong enough uh, at least to me i know that people don't like this and these lead into certain controversial areas which may not be uh, discuss which cannot be discussed in public uh, because uh, they cut very deeply into the identity of the Mlecha world and unfortunately we live in a world dominated by the Mlechas where anything which cuts close to their undergirdings would uh, draw a very strong reaction uh, yes from and them. a lot of are... uh,
0: and a lot of you know uh heartburn uh because uh oh yeah you know the worst thing that you could do to a mlecha is to you know uh, you know kind of you can say all kinds of rotten things about their civilization to their face but if you Know, undergird certain uh, things that they hold to be self evident. Uh, Right. If you undercut it, there is a very strong reaction.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, there are certain things which uh, cannot be discussed in public, unfortunately. Uh, Unless we have a Hindu uh, where we all can live under an Arjun rule, uh, something simply cannot be discussed. Uh, So that Aside, uh, it's I. I would ask a listener to to do his or her own study of the period of how the Soviet revolutionaries got established. And uh, in a way, I even see such a hand in the French Revolution that uh, the English, and perhaps some German Germanic. Uh, principalities played a role in fostering the French Revolution to weaken the French uh, and to destabilize the French power. So uh, likewise, the Russian Revolution definitely was uh, fostered by the Western powers to destabilize Russia. And uh, a whole class of such movements can be seen, the covert operations conducted by the West against other nations, uh, they all have uh, their roots in these kinds of movements, like those which were and continue to be directed against Russia. Uh, even today, Americans uh, there is a strain of Americans associated with a certain uh, political party uh, for whom Russia is like uh, the ever-present demon, uh, which see, uh, they seem to dream or have nightmares every night of Russia. Russia this, Russia that, Russia, Russia, Russia. That's all they talk about. Uh, so uh, despite the fact that uh, Russian power has greatly waned as of today, so anyhow, all that, uh, that rant apart, uh, in the end, I think World War II was sort of that the, the final act in that phase of reckoning. So they were set back by the revolution. But now their very existence was challenged uh, when the Nazi forces, led by some very talented generals, uh, started making their eastward uh, uh, thrust. And if you read the accounts of the war for the first Few months, it was just a string of Nazi victories. The Russians were just retreating, crumbling before them. And it was then that that turning point, like at Stalingrad, uh, the recall of Zhukov, amidst other things, and then uh, the turning point at Stalingrad. It was truly uh, something which aroused the Russian spirit in a way which only few nations have gone through. Uh, It was at an enormous human cost. I don't think any other country has taken that kind of uh, death in a war. And it came out victorious at the end of it, despite all those losses. So it, it is something which, even for a neutral, I don't have a dog in this race, German or Russian, they are both equally distant to me. But one cannot, uh, when one looks at accounts of the Russian defense, uh, even I cannot fail to be moved that there was something very deep in the in their spirit of uh, how they uh, finally uh, drove back the Germans and went all the way to conquer uh, Germany or part of Germany. So uh, it it was that. it was a moment in, in which nations are made, so to say. Uh, I, and very few nations are made through such a, such a moment. Like Hindus have not gone through such a thing. And I think that reflects uh, in our shortcomings too. Uh, after 1857, we never had a moment of reckoning. And it could come to us in the future, but I I don't know if we would uh, come out like the ruse. Unfortunately, these are events which uh, involve a huge human cost. Hmm.
0: So at this point, probably I'll go back to one of the things that we discussed earlier and probably the significance, uh, you know, the significance of uh, cinema and the visual medium in the 20th century, 20th century politics. So around this period uh, uh, you know the soviets had started figuring out i mean after the germans uh after the nazis the soviets mm. and a lot of powers around the world the americans the soviets everybody started figuring out the power of this new medium cinema for you mm. know uh, mass propaganda and for population mind control so mm. stalin really put a lot of money into it uh he he got eisenstein uh, you know, uh even before Eisenstein had made movie like Battleship Potemkin, which was uh, in he, again a very critical uh, movie in movie history, he got him to make a movie around the defense of Novgorod by uh, Alexander Nevsky. And there, uh, how he showed it was like he showed the German Teutonic Knights invading and he made them wear you know clothes and helmets, which were somewhat reminiscent of the uh, First World War German helmets, uh, oh. uh, and uh, they had them invade Russia and they had a young prince, Alexander Nevsky, who stood up and defended the Orthodox faith and defended Mother Russia. It's, uh, I mean, uh, it's now it's anachronistic and all of the technology is all dated if you see it today. But at mm-hmm. that time, it has, must have been a really moving spectacle for any Russian. And what really caught the Russian imagination was the concept of not communism or Stalin or anything. Stalin or the Soviet elite is nowhere to be seen, even alluded to in this picture. It is the mm-hmm. church it is, uh, and Russia, which is shown, mm-hmm. Mother Russia, which is in the form of the mm-hmm. steppe and the earth. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is what comes through in this movie. And Stalin had it made by one of the greatest movie makers of the 20th century Eisenstein and mm-hmm. uh, it's just a different story that uh, afterwards Stalin felt threatened and uh, stopped him making movies after World oh. War <laughs> II. So what happened was Stalin had him make a movie. Stalin also saw himself you know in his he had a mental image of himself as a descendant of the great czars, or uh, as a descendant mm-hmm. as a re-embodiment of Tsar Peter and of Tsar uh, uh, Ivan the Terrible. So, he had uh, Eisenstein make a movie about Tsar Ivan the Terrible. The first movie was very well received because it spoke of the greatness of Mother Russia. And uh, in the climax, you know, the people of Moscow come and tell Tsar Ivan, uh, please don't desert us, our father, come back to us. And uh, that's when, throughout the movie, Ivan the Terrible, the guy who's playing Ivan the Terrible is a very stiff, very stern person. He permits himself a tear at the end oh. he sees yeah. that the people look upon him as their father yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, see stalin apparently liked it till then then he commissioned a second movie which was a you know uh subsequent events after rivan comes back to moscow and then he canned the movie because uh, it started oh. becoming more and more true to life, <laughs> <laughs> which showed which actually showed stalin's own internal image mm. of himself he saw mm. it being projected in a different way as he himself as others saw him so mm. he had the movie canned
1: <laughs> so anyway oh. that's an
0: interesting period of a uh, piece of movie history mm. and uh, alexander nevsky if you ever get a chance uh, uh try to see the battle of the ice so there is this oh, uh oh, where yeah. the two armies meet on a frozen mm. lake and it's been mm. like copied in like uh mm. i don't know how many movies since then that uh, mm. scene has mm. find referenced in so many movies since then Anyways, hmm. that was a bit of uh, you know uh, slightly lighter uh,
1: historical information for uh, our viewers. Please interesting. go. Interesting, interesting. No, no problem. Yeah, so I think we can conclude uh, the Russian chapter, so to say. So after World War Two, this uh, the rallying effect of theirs was what. Uh, Spurred them or projected them into the superpower status, and uh, a sideshow for in most Western tellings of history. But a very important thing in my opinion was the assault on the Japanese, and this was uh, something which they were waiting for. Uh, there were some incidents in the interim where they had shown uh, there were uh, the the battle in Manchuria where they defeated the imperial Japanese forces uh, before the encounter of World War II. Um, but uh, it, it show it's, uh, it didn't really mean that they had gained back their pride. It was a uh, interim state where they at least proved themselves that they could defeat the Japanese. But uh, once they had cleared the Germans on the Western flank, Stalin concentrated his whole force to smash the Japanese in Manchuria. And it was a brutal campaign. I think over a million Japanese were killed in that assault. Uh, I I may be getting the numbers wrong, but it was a very large uh, number of Japanese who were put through the meat grinder of Stalin. Uh, That's how I would describe it. And uh, this was pivotal for the surrender of Japan. The the Japanese knew very well that uh, it was not the nuclear bombs which uh, America dropped on Japan, but uh, it was this assault of Stalin, and uh, there was, I think, a raw ethnic hatred on the Russian side, at least, and uh, there was a deep sense of needing to revenge, uh, needing to f- get revenge for that old defeat of theirs in the Tsarist period, in the last days of the tsarist period, and the combination of this. Uh, along with a flagging Japan meant it was a bloodbath. And if the Russians had their way, they would have definitely killed the emperor and imposed a rather brutal yoke on Japan. And it was the fear of that, It, it were, they were between the devil and the deep sea, literally. And I think they thought they should surrender to the devil instead. Uh, the deep sea is completely impersonal and unforgiving and would drown the emperor and, All that Japan had done to uh, uh, preserve its culture, Uh, so they took the risk with the American uh, instead, which didn't turn out Uh, to be
0: all that bad after all.
1: Yes, yeah, because that the filter which the Japanese have, as I described earlier, it remained. So despite the American attempts to hurt them to Christianity, uh, it didn't go. Too far, and uh, the Japanese managed to preserve their culture in the least. In a sense, I would even say that it was a pyrrhic victory for Japan. They managed to preserve some degree of their old culture. They remained a heathen state. Their temples are still widely visited by the votaries. People continue to follow the old religion, Shinto, Baudha, or a combination thereof. There are Mantravadins still doing japa on the mountains uh, as they may in a heathen country. And at the same time, they got their revenge eventually against uh, the Americans by invading the automobile market and putting Toyota and Honda on the American roads and uh, destroying the American uh, automobile industry, or maybe destroying is a Extreme term, but uh, sort of uh, making it lose its edge. The success in the electronic industry, so on. They can be seen as a victory in an em- economic warfare, and some kind of uh, state state was achieved. Uh, anyhow, that's uh, that aside. The but these victories of World War Two, which came at an enormous cost. Uh, in the end did propel russia into a period of superpowerdom which I, at least in my childhood days it was not clear as to which paradigm was to then. Uh, well, well, at least when i was young it was not at all certain that is we did in india we didn't have all the information of the russian uh, weaknesses so it was not clear whether it was the americans who emerge victorious, or the ruse, or there would be a long period of uh, um, the bipolar superpower state of the world. The collapse of the Soviet Union uh, was somewhat surprising, especially for people in India, Uh, though people like me were sort of seeing it. I don't want to boast here, but I had already got a hint that this was not a stable system. And uh, there Roots of that decay go pretty deep. It ultimately lies in the in the fact that the Soviet system had many cracks, and perhaps in the long run, it was not going to compete with uh, a resource rich America, even though Russia had its own resources. But in terms of intellectual uh, power, for example, the Eastern European Jews and the German Jews who went to America could found an intellectual culture and give them the bomb. Uh, There were Jews involved in the making of the Russian bomb too, but uh, it was never able to become that kind of a center which would attract uh, intellectual capital from all over the world which might uh, make a difference. Uh, That was one factor you could see. It still remained an ethnic Russian power. And since then, it has been all downhill. Unless and, uh, and you see some inward-looking movements like the Visarion movement, you yes. may have uh, the, this peculiar, which is centered yeah. on the peculiar personality of a guy who calls himself the Visarion, which is, who lives uh, in a secluded place. Uh, and it's a pro-fertility movement. So it could be that it's such kinds of pro-fertility movements which eventually uh, come to dominate. But a Russian revival definitely is not on the cards anytime soon. That said, I think Putin has done something very clever to insulate the Russian economy. Uh, He has learned the hard way after multiple Western sanctions and uh, Western interference with the Russian economy to try to pull it down. He has uh, created a bunch of steps, which has essentially made Russia quite energy independent and uh, economically uh, walled off. So in a sense, they are like the pre-Maiji Japan. They are in that inward phase of being walled off. They still have aspirations, as you mentioned, for the warm water ports, for the Mediterranean uh, domain of control and they have attempted to interfere in syria where the west has tried to overthrow assad uh, through their islamic allies like the islamic state uh, and the al-qaeda and the like and the russians as in the past have stood against uh, these islamic allies of the west Um, so in that sense they still have some aspirations but at this moment i would say that they are in that inward phase, much like the pre-maiji japan but you cannot write them off i think uh, uh, there are other things which may play a role such as global warming i don't know how real global warming is i don't want to get into that debate also i i really don't know i'm just an ignorant person in this regard. But it does look as though there is some evidence that there might be global warming. And global
0: the taiga may warming... open up for large-scale farming, you mean?
1: Right. So, yeah, yeah. So, global warming is bad for India, but good for Russia. So, uh, yeah. It has been said that even Chinggis Khan's expansion may have corresponded to a period of warming and increased uh, rainfall the steps which allowed sustenance of greater populations. So, who knows, future climatic changes, Nabion and the decline of uh, America could result in a Russian revival in sometime in the future. But the biggest problem for them right now is demographic. And unlike, unless movements like the Visarion movement and a new uh, uh, pronatal movement is able to show up the numbers, uh, Russia could lose parts of its eastern territory to the Han belligerents. The only thing which is maintaining the balance is that the Han demographic sucks as the Americans would say especially in their western
0: provinces and in the you know more rural provinces, the demographics are supposed to be even worse than that of the coastal cities. And right. And entire... they have been hiding that yeah entire you know entire communes you know they call them communes or entire counties are emptying out of young people yeah. young, and it's just yeah. old people in entire commune you know uh, uh communes and uh, counties right
1: in Western so China. E- even though it's fashionable these days to say that machine learning will fight the future wars i am still old school uh, I could be proven wrong, but I think it's young men who fight wars, yeah. and uh, neither Russia nor uh, China have that supply of young men. So, status—some degree of status quo—is going to continue uh, in, in that uh, front. So See, maybe... at the end of the day, on the ground, it is upper body strength, testosterone,
0: right. and uh, body mass which wins battles for you. Which was proved on the heights of Galvan last year. <laughs> It's upper body strength and testosterone, which uh, and adre, I know adrenaline, which carried the day. Uh,
1: Galvan was a particular regression where the Chinese came with a uh, club, which actually looked like a Shang era club with spikes. I must say, so that uh, definitely put us back into the Bronze Age style (laughs) of warfare. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. But uh, you know, you never know the, the a machine learning back. This machine learning is the fashion. It's the fashionable word. Everyone has to utter it at least a few times these days. So you know, I fifth generation
0: computers out. were fifth generation computers were what uh, I used to hear when I was in college, and before mm-hmm. that, robots were going to take over our world. When I was a right. no, when I was a high school kid. So it's these like things Elon keep coming.
1: Yes, Elon exactly. Musk's cars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, ch- ch- Chinese are going to drive such cars into <laughs> the next well, battlefront. Yeah, uh, I'm still see ba- it's
0: 2021, ba- and I'm still wondering why I am not wearing a space suit yet.
1: You know, a yeah,
0: unisex space I, I suit. would
1: really, I would really like that uh, driverless car that I can summon and take me where I want to go. I really don 't want to bother myself with the traffic or anything <laughs> if if the if machine learning did the job for me uh more power to it, but uh, I still feel that warfare is going to be demographic uh technology is going to make a big difference but it, in the absence of demography, technology alone is not going to matter like say the armenia Azerbaijan. Uh, Azerbaijan conflict is a good example of Israeli technology uh, making the difference against uh, against the Armenians who earlier held the upper hand. Uh, so, but I think there are other factors. There has been an uh, uh, Azerbaijani demographic too, which allows them to occupy those territories which they have conquered from uh, the Armenians. Uh, so. Uh, in the end if uh, you know, people are going to matter uh, as uh, i think uh oswald spengler the great german thinker would have called it the blood so yeah. the, you ultimately need that blood uh, the blood flowing through real living beings uh, to make the difference so
0: in uh Another thing that, you know, I noticed about Russia while we get to the closure of this discussion on Russia. Another thing I yeah. noticed is, you know, as Stalin saw himself as a, in his mind's eye, he saw himself as a, a successor to Peter. I have hmm. noticed another thing that every great reformer or great uh, person who changes Russia, you know, hmm. effectively take some ideas of theirs and just dimposes is their will on the people for example peter the great before his time the russian average russian used to wear a kaftan have a long beard and wear breeches he banned breeches right. and said that everybody must wear trousers he put a tax mm-hmm. on beards and right. uh, that seems rather mild when you mm-hmm. compare to stalin's collectivization uh, yes. you know I- initiative which effectively destroyed agriculture for a decade in russia but in the end you know it actually made turned russia from more of an agricultural to an industrial power it actually created russia as an industrial power Mm -hmm. at great human cost so what do you think about this
1: see bad ideas have been the ruin of russia and they could be (laughs) the ruin of america too we see great parallels lysenko is a very good example uh, for this that russian agriculture's failure i would place a lot of the blame at the hands of Lysenko, who definitely uh, was very close to the powers uh, that is the Central Committee. Uh, Lysenko had some ridiculous ideas of biology, uh, vernalization, uh, uh, Lysenkoian vernalization, where he thought, uh, just like the communist idea of people were fungible, and there are no differences between people. They are all the same. And you can make a farmer into a computer programmer uh, so on, without any thought of uh, the innate aptitude, so on. Uh, likewise, he thought plants could be made to grow in frost, frosty conditions uh, by just making them uh, bear sprout in the, in the icy conditions, and you would have a wheat crop in, uh, in the cold conditions, and so on. So this awful biology of Lysenko uh, led to a catastrophic failure of their agriculture and uh, enormous human cost uh, the problem was the socialist thinkers were so invested in it that they could not even see uh, that this nonsense is going to result in uh, in a disaster the same thing you saw in china with mao uh, he had a program to kill all sparrows
0: yeah kill and, sparrows uh, and have you know people's yeah. backyards they used to have miniature steel plants to
1: produce steel <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was even more. <laughs> that style of industrialization was, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, was uh, perhaps it, it was a regression even before the Neolithic, though there was no steel then to make. Uh, after all, our whole metallurgical technology comes from traditions where there was centralized, huge uh, metal production. Centers like amidst um, our own ancestors uh, of the Indo-European uh, lineage of our ancestry, uh, perhaps even the Harappan lineage. I know less of whether they did so, or not. but anyhow, that's a different thing. But uh, uh, this, the, when bad ideas take root, uh, they can have disastrous consequences, especially when you're when you have the blinders of a system like socialism. So, the big problem was socialism was not agile enough to see that a bad biology like that of Lysenko could translate shortly into uh, into millions of human deaths. Uh, And uh, same with Mao and his sparrow killing. Uh, Now, uh, in America, you see that happening today the same anti biological sentiment of navyon mother and uh, the denial of biology uh, at uh, even in medical schools uh, you don't have women but you have chest feeding people and uh, so on so uh, it can hit uh, the us in the near future i don't know how it's going to go but it's quite a possibility uh, and india hence to uh, should learn the lesson, though I must say Hindus can uh, can be slow at learning lessons from the past, uh, that uh, these things can happen, that once you commit to bad ideas, the leadership once it commits to bad ideas, uh, there is a certain tendency not to see the fo- the flaws of it. They would simply tell you that it has not been implemented the right way. And once you do it the right way, you will see the great benefits come out of it. Now, in the case of Russia's success, I would attribute it to a small band of visionary people, like uh, the guys behind the nuclear program, uh, who got that Lenin medal many times over, I think. So there were some people who, uh, extraordinary scientists in their midst, who were able to uh, reverse engineer the bomb for them then the early computerization the adoption of computer technology in the soviet union was a remarkable story in itself they saw very early on that to manage their vast resources and uh, uh, to administer the country it would be important to have a degree of computational or automation sorry um, which meant that you have to have a uh, invest in computer technology, including uh, connected computers, it, though it didn't become the internet as in America, but the concept of connecting them and the like. So the Russian effort into computerization also uh, was to hold them in good stead in the future. The importance of uh, the use of uh, space technology for uh, weather forecasting and the like. Uh, so realized its importance early even if it was due to competition with the us uh, they also realized its imp- uh, the intrinsic uh, importance of that thing uh, while some of the space exploring the man in space and all that was for show but the technology yes, yes. behind it for forecasting uh, weather forecasting and prospecting through satellite imagery all those were uh, the was in spite of communism or in spite of socialism, rather than due to socialism. It was due to those few visionary uh, uh, thinkers. Uh, in a, a sense,
0: that, uh, we could say the same thing for uh, many Indian space, the Indian space program, or the Indian nuclear program, yes, program or uh, even the even these, you know, for for the you know the much reviled IT code coolies. Uh, yeah. The, without them, so many the, you couldn't have such a huge mass of people. You know, millions of people actually enjoying a middle-class lifestyle in India. So all of these came right. out uh, not through any planned or you know uh, thing like that, but through just the efforts of sa- a small group of you know dedicated individuals.
1: Yes. So the Panchayat Yojanas of Jawaharlal Nehru they did very little, and uh, it was the individuals, the individual entrepreneurs, the individual thinkers who uh, either within the government uh, framework, like for ISRO, or as you said, the um, code coolies to be very derogatory, uh, setting up their shop, which was due to individual entrepreneurs. I think individuals matter in the end. Institutions help to nurture what the individuals set up. And that's what the United States was very good at until its recent navion Mother crisis. Uh, and even the places where such innovation happened, like uh, in the tech sector, where co- have now been colonized uh, by the new religion. So yeah.
0: So that's a fascinating walkthrough of history, and I'm sure I've really taken up a lot of your time and your energy on a weekend. Uh, oh no, problem. Sure...
1: since it's on a weekend, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Um, and yeah. uh, uh, well, thanks for hearing me ramble. Yes, I hope you have not been. Uh...
0: <laughs> oh no, it was a really fascinating discussion, and I'm sure uh, our discerning viewers will definitely uh, have much to learn from this uh, from this episode as we've had from our previous two episodes so oh,
1: if if the feedback was positive that's good uh, the feedback I has have, been
0: very good the feedback has oh, been very good that's good to
1: know though yeah. i have my uh, share of haters but uh, you know i don't <laughs> yeah I, I don't care uh, yeah. you're doing something good if people hate you <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we've had
0: uh, our own share of brickbats bats but I would very gladly welcome any positive, positive, not just positive, any constructive feedback on what we do here at Indic today. If there's any uh, constructive feedback to help us make ourselves better, I would be very glad to take that. I don't like the abuse, but I ignore the abuse. So go ahead and abuse all you like for all you people who are going to abuse us out there. We just ignore you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much,
0: Manas Tarangini. For no this problem. Uh, amount of time you've taken for us. Thank you very much again. And no hope to see you again on Indic Today Podcast. Namaste.
1: Sure, sure. We can have some other topics down the line some other day. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Okay. Okay. Good night or good much. day. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Bye. Very nice day. Bye. Bye.